welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a true icon, a rock and roll Hall of Fame inductee, class of 2019. He is the voice on some of the most seminal recordings in music history. And those, Colin, are not words that we say lightly. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about the legendary Colin Blundstone, lead singer, going way back to the zombies. Welcome, Colin. What a joy it is to see you and to talk to you. Great to see you too, Matt. Great to see you. So, Colin, there were so many places to start, and the zombies are in the midst of uh, uh, an incredible renaissance in many ways, and we're going to talk about your upcoming gig at Abbey Road. But one of the things uh, that we were talking about a little earlier was a show you did in 2013 in New York in Central Park. And I was struck by uh, a song that you did there by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And I've also seen you sing Jimmy Ruffin's great song, You've Really Got a Hold on Me. And I'd love to start by talking about uh, Motown. That seems to have had a real influence on you and that music and, and that you still perform some of it today says something I'm fascinated by it's sort of the cross fertilization of our American blues and how that influenced British rock and how some of our music influenced you. Well, I would say that um, with the zombies, I think one of the things that made the zombies unique was that they took their influences from so many different kinds of music from classical music to jazz, to the blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll. And, I think that made us very different, but in some ways it was to a disadvantage because people have always found it difficult to label us, to categorize us because we take our influences, uh, we take our, our, our inspiration from such wide spectrum of, of influences. And of course, Motown is in there as well. I'm, I've always been a huge fan of everything on, on Motown. And I can remember uh, we, the original Zombies did, you really got a hold on me. I think on our very first, um, on our very first album and the Beatles had covered that but we knew it by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles and it's a slightly different version and we always did the Smokey version. I don't like you A, it is it's a great song and, and uh, you know I've, I've recorded a, a few um, Motown songs also as a solo artist I, I did a big had a big hit here with what becomes of the brokenhearted but it wasn't a hit in America it always intrigues me you know because in different territories you have different hits and so you can if you're not uh, prepared you know you can start talking about a song to somebody and you, th you, you think obviously they're gonna know this song, but they've never heard of it. It wasn't a hit in that territory. And then and in Europe, you can go 50 miles down the road and it was a hit in that territory. So it keeps you on your toes. 
And, and early days along those same lines, when the zombies came over and toured in the States, it was a big, big deal. And you had not blown up as much back home at that time. Funnily enough, yeah, I, um, I think we were always stronger in the States than we were in the UK. Yeah, that is, that's true. In fact, I think we were stronger all around the world than um, we were in the UK for some reason. We never really happened in, in our own country, which is good and bad. It, mean, it means that we're free to walk down the road and, uh, you know, go to the shops and do normal things. Um, but sometimes it would be nice to have been a bit more successful in the UK. I mean, we now we've been in the business for, what, 60 years. We play the top venues in, in the country. But a lot of that's got to do with the fact that we have a really good band. We've been playing for a long time and we've managed to establish a, a firm fan base. It's not particularly through the charts. I mean, you, you know, there's different ways to get um, on this journey. There's different ways to get to the same destination. And we haven't really done it through the charts. Uh, great. So, Colin, we, we have so much to talk about, but let's go back to early days and to Hertfordshire and school in St. Albans and the early days when you were sort of finding your voice as a singer. I know you were in bands and schools and, you know, hooked up with the boys and ultimately Rod, of course, who's still with you. Um, but talk about those early days and what your remembrances are as a young man. Were your parents supportive of your passion for music? And let's, let's talk about the early days of Colin okay, Blackstone. Well, you know, starting right from the beginning, um, my mother came from a big family. She had five brothers and three sisters. And all five brothers were multi-instrumentalists. And I think that made a big impression on me. Um, you know, before I was nine or 10 years old, our family had a dance band, in particular things like Christmas. It was, uh, it was quite spectacular, really. They were very, very good players, um, perhaps influenced by that, but also because I, I was very keen on early rock and roll, Elvis, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, all Americans. Um, I managed to get my parents to buy me a guitar. It wasn't easy for them, but they, they bought me a guitar and I could play a little bit. Um, I went to a school in St. Albans and it was a very strict school and we had to sit in alphabetical order. So by chance, I sat next to a guy called Paul Arnold who had a neighbor, not at the same school as me. There's no way I would have met this guy. His neighbor was called Rod Argent and Rod wanted to put a band together. He'd asked Paul if he was interested and Paul turned to me one day, Paul Arnold, who I sat next to at school and he said, you've got a guitar, haven't you? I said yes, and that was my audition to join the Zombies. I, that, that was it, I was in. Um, went to the first rehearsal as a rhythm guitarist, not as the singer. And um, Rod was gonna be the lead singer. I'd never met him before. We had a coffee break at half 11 or something like that. We just played an instrumental. It was a old standard called Malaguena. And because Rob was the singer, he hadn't actually done anything up to this point. He went over to an old broken down piano in the corner of the room and he played Nut Rocker by B Bumble and the Stingers.
to be a fairly accomplished keyboard player to play that. It's it's quite something. He was in a different league to us. And I said to Rod, I, I didn't think, don't think I even knew, knew his name at this point. But I said, you know, whoever you are, you should play keyboards in this band because you're really good. And he said, no, this is a rock band. We just want guitars. And that was how we left it until at the end of that first rehearsal, I was just putting my guitar away. And before I did it, I played a Ricky Nelson song to myself and just sang a little bit. It was just a bit of fun. And Rod heard it and he said, I tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboards. And that essentially was the zombies. Uh, unbelievable story. So, uh... Colin, there are certain places in musical history. We were very lucky a few years ago. We went on a family trip to Liverpool and went and met Rory Best, Pete's brother, and went to their house where Mona and the, and the, the where they used to, the Beatles used to play long before the Cavern. It was the Casbah Coffee, and it was. I, a I've, yes, I've read about it. I've never been there. A tiny Sorry. little space. Another tiny little space that's important in the zombies history is the Pioneer Club. Yes. That's where we had, well, that's where we had our first rehearsal. And, I, and as, I, as I just said, when we took a coffee break, that's where Rod went to this old piano. It's just by chance it was there. And the whole thing was arranged by Rod's cousin, Jim Rodford, who was in the big local band they called the Blue Tones. They were very, very good. And Jim went on to be a founder member of Argent, and then later for 18 years, he was bass player in the Kinks before he joined this incarnation of the Zombies. But when we first got together and had our first rehearsal in the Pioneer Club, Jim Rodford arranged that. He's a few years older than us. Sadly, he's no longer with us, but he's a few years older than us. He arranged that we could rehearse in the Pioneer Club and he arranged that we could use all the amplifiers and the drum kit from his band, the Blue Tones. And so when we got together, I, I honestly thought we sounded pretty good, a lot better than I thought we were going to sound. I didn't know the other guys, but just the one guy I sat next to at school. I didn't know the other guys at all, but uh, I, don't, I wasn't expecting much. And I thought we sounded pretty good. A few years ago, two or three years ago, Jim Rodford, who was watching our first rehearsal, well, I thought we sounded pretty good. He told me he was thinking, no chance, no chance. Oh boy, he never told amazing. Me, he never told me sort of, for 50 years that that's what he thought when he first saw, we weren't called the zombies then, we weren't called anything. We were five, basically uh, 15 year old boys trying to get a band together that, you know, like people do all around the world not thinking for a minute we could ever be a professional band or make uh, a record. That was, I, would, I wouldn't have believed if anybody had said that, you know. But we, we shall I go on about that? The, yeah, but, no, sure, it's wonderful, yeah. <laughs> um, we rehearsed, we used to rehearse usually on Sundays, various places, anywhere that would have us really, because we were very noisy and not very good for a, for a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we rehearsed for about a year before we played our very first gig, which I remember vividly. It had its high points and it had its low points, <laughs> but we got through it, we got through it. And then gradually we started to build up a bit of a fan base around basically St Albans, where we all went to school. We started to build up a bit of a fan base. And then we went for a rock and roll competition and 
I couldn't believe it, we won. Uh, there were about a hundred bands went in for this competition and none of us, I'm not being falsely modest, none of us thought that we would stand a chance, but we won it. And it led to a record deal with Decca Records. So now we're up to 1964. And then we, we were introduced to a producer called Ken Jones and he was giving us a pep talk before our first session. And in the middle of the talk, he said, you know, you could always write something for this session. You don't have to do, we were probably gonna do some blues classics or something like that. And Rod took that on board, as did Chris White. And he went away, I had no idea he could write songs. I, I had no idea. He came back about two or three days later and he'd written, She's Not There. Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. But it's too late to say you're sorry, how would I know? Why should I care? Please don't bother trying to find her. She's not there. Well, let me tell you about the way she looked, the way she acted, the color of her hair. Her voice was soft and cool, her eyes were clear and bright, but she's not there. And even just hearing him sing it quickly on the piano, I think we all knew that it, it was special. And a couple of weeks later, we recorded that in Decca Studios in West Hampstead. And of course it went on to be a huge hit, but it nearly didn't happen because it used to be thought to be pretty cool to record in the evening and in the night rather than in the day. So we arrived at seven o'clock at Decca Studios in West Hampstead. And unfortunately the recording engineer who was a fine engineer, he was very, very good, but he'd been at a wedding all day and he was completely drunk. And worse than that, he was extremely aggressive with it. And I, I have to laugh when I look back now because when I started singing, he was screaming in the headphones at me, screaming, really, really aggressive. And having been in the business for 60 years now, I can tell you that after 20 minutes in that studio, I knew the music business was not for me. I, how, how could I stay in that, a madhouse like that? But then we had a bit of luck and he collapsed, he's unconscious on the floor. And we carried him out of the studio. And we had to carry him up two flights of stairs and put him in a black London taxi. And I never ever saw him again, never saw him again. And his assistant took over and his assistant was Gus Dudgeon. And it was Gus Dudgeon's first session. And it was our first session. Gus never forgot that. And of course he went on to be one of the most famous producers in the world, producing many of Elton's hits, David Bowie, Kiki D, many other people as well. But that was Gus Dudgeon's first session. So She's Not There nearly didn't happen, to be absolutely honest. What an incredible story. So it's 1964. Yeah. What was the Mustangs had by then become the zombies. Yes, we were the sundowners in between. We mustn't. Uh, All right, so let's hear it from you. Give us, give us the, give us the story. <laughs> That's it, really. We were desperate for a name. I mean, it seems. I mean, a band's got to have a name. It does seem a little crazy when you sit down and everybody's trying to throw in names. And we were the Mustangs for about a week. You're quite right. And there, there seem to be hundreds of Mustangs or bands all over the place. So I think, to my eternal shame, I think I came up with Sundowners, which was a film with Robert Mitchum and Deborah Kerr, I think. 
And I said, so sundowners, I don't think lasted more than 24 hours. And then Paul Arnold, who I sat next to at school, came up with the idea of the zombies. I had no idea what a zombie was. There was no zombie culture in those days, no films, magazines, TV programs. It was out of the blue, the zombies. And I think the other guys were more keen than me, but it stuck. I mean, you know, it's, it's memorable. And 1964, we were the zombies. Amazing. And Paul left the band and became a doctor, didn't he? That's right. He was the only guy who escaped um, <laughs> because uh, he wanted to be a doctor and he, he, had, he had to do, you know, he had to study. And um, the band was taking up more and more time. So he left the band and Chris White took his place, who went on to be one of the important writers in the band along with Rod Argent. So um, it, was, it was good for Paul because he went on to be a doctor. He, he lives in Edmonton in Canada now and he always comes to see us when we play up there. And, and it, was, it was good for Paul, it was, it was good for the band because uh, Chris came in and of course he's a formidable writer and has written some very big songs. Fantastic. So you talked about how the zombies have grown over the years and, and still an incredible musical force today, but it didn't happen through the charts. She's Not There, 1964, I think peaked at 12 in the UK charts, your highest charting song. Um, but that song and some of the others that you still perform today, Colin, these are some of the most iconic wonderful, timeless songs that anyone's ever produced or recorded anywhere. That's got to make you feel incredibly proud. Well, I mean, in a way it does. And, and, but I, I must just emphasize, we were really lucky to have two such um, sophisticated writers in the band. They wrote these timeless classics. Um, and I always think, you know, if you're going into the studio, if you haven't got the songs, you can all pack up and go home. It starts with the songs. And Rod and Chris were just great writers. To some extent, they were learning their trade in their early years. But by the time we got to 1967 and Odyssey and Oracle, I think that they both had, had perfected their craft. I mean, you're always learning, you can always learn, but they were formidable writers by 1967. But I mean, I think it is quite interesting when you talk about timeless classics, because it's not always the songs that go to number one. It's not always the bands that have the most hits, that have the longest careers. And there's this, there's a little bit of a mystery in the music business, there always is. Why do some bands, you know, have a longer lifespan than other bands? Why do some records are hits and they're forgotten three months later. I don't know the answer to that, but we're, we've been really fortunate in that the songs that we had hits with, uh, people remember. And, and in this country, we didn't have many, many hits at all. She's Not There, as you said, was about number 12. We had, I think Tell No was a small hit in this country. Time of the Season, this is the only country, the UK, where Time of the Season was never a hit but it's been in lots of commercials. It's been in lots of films. I tell you something, people in this country think it was a hit, but it wasn't, it never was. It's, it's I think the zombie story is, is quite unusual actually, because we didn't really have the hits and that here we are, a band that was formed in the sixties and we're still playing. In fact, we play to bigger places every year. We sell more records every year and yet we've never, not 
really been a big chart act. I, I, don't get me wrong, I really appreciate the a career that we've had, but I can't say that I fully understand it. Yeah, no, it is an incredible, unusual story in so many ways. You're absolutely right. And let's stay in that period for a little while longer. You come over to the States, She's Not There is a huge hit, and you end up on these incredible package tours, playing seven shows a day at places like the old Brooklyn Fox Theater and the great DJs like Murray the K and enormously influential figures largely lost in history. That must have been incredible. You're barely, what, not even 20 years old? No, uh, Rod and I were, were just 19 at that time. We were 18 when we recorded She's Not There. But by then, we were just about 19. And it was incredibly exciting because, it, particularly coming to America, it's, this is the, America is the home of the blues. It's the home of jazz. It's the home of rock and roll. Now, all the greats came from America. And all British musicians, certainly at that time, were looking to, to America, you know, the, their lead um and in some ways i felt a little bit guilty because we would do tracks like um uh you really got a hold on me and and all the um chuck berry tunes and bo diddley and so forth but because we put a british twist on it american audiences would receive it in a probably a a different way to the, the way they would receive it from the original artist well we were never trying to steal from them we were just full of admiration for them. And when we arrived at the Brooklyn Fox, we were a little, um, well, I don't know about intimidated, but we were a little anxious about how people would receive us. Six months before, we'd been a local, almost schoolboy band playing just local gigs. And here we are in Brooklyn with sort of about 14 acts on the bill Dion Warwick, Chuck Jackson, Patti LaBelle, the Shangri La's incredible artists and we had to follow Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells eight times a day for 10 days. We went, we followed her. And I can tell you that it was a bit intimidating because they were fantastic. They absolutely brought the house down. But you know we were we were fortunate because at that time we had the number one record. So it's it's quite a good foundation for a stage act, you know. And uh, and we did okay. We did okay. You sure did. So let's talk about this a little more because this stuff just doesn't happen anymore. Back in the day, and Sinatra used to play at the Paramount in Times Square, this notion of seven, eight shows a day and these package tours, um, you would play what, 15 minute set? Oh, no. <laughs> a lot shorter than that. Sometimes we would just play the one song. One a lot song. Of uh, everybody, you know, it might be one or two songs, um, sometimes two songs, and there would be, say, 14, 14 acts for, on, on the bill. I think Chuck Jackson actually was top of the bill, and I think he did five or six songs, but everyone else sang one or two songs. And so, then they, they showed a short film, and really, I think the people were supposed to leave, but most of them came, came in the morning, and they stayed all day. I think it started at about 10 in the morning or something like that and went on till seven or eight at night and um it was absolutely packed and there were queues all around the block and we couldn't leave the theater paul atkinson our lead guitarist he left the theater once he went out of the stage door and he was 
surrounded by a huge crowd. He lost his shirt and he was pushed up against a plate glass window and the police came in and got him and they said, okay, listen, we'll do this once, but we're not doing it again. So you have to stay in the theater. So for 10 days, we literally just had to stay or well, everyone did had to stay in the theater, but it was a good introduction really to, uh, you know, um, American shows because we opened on Christmas day. So everyone was away from home over Christmas. So there was a really fine camaraderie backstage. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't as cold and lonely as it could have been when we were away from home, 19 years old over Christmas. We, we had our own Christmas um, backstage. It was great. And you touched on it as uh, Rod and then over time, Rod and Chris became brilliant songwriters. But most of that early stuff you played going back to the Pioneer and St. Albans and early on, you were doing mostly covers. We were. We were doing covers. And it actually created a, a real problem because the guys had only just started writing. Rod will now admit that he'd written two songs before she's not there, but I, I didn't know it at the time. Uh, I don't think Chris had written anything. So when she's not there was a hit, in those days, record companies would really put on the pressure for a follow-up in at least six weeks time, the pressure's really on. And uh, neither of them had got a backlog of songs. So we were, we were really stuck. And in the UK, uh, the only song anyone had was a Chris White song called Leave Me Be. And so that was put out as an A-side. And it, it was very difficult because none of us thought it was an A-side. And it, it, it just flopped, absolutely flopped. In America, because everything was about three months later in America, She's Not There was issued later, um, they skipped that song and went straight to Tell Her No. And that was, a, I think, five or six in, in the charts. And it was, it was a small hit in the UK as well. But um, that was always a problem. And if she should tell you, come closer. And if she tempts you with a charm. Tell her no, 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 no. It seemed to me, I, I think all record companies were the same, so I don't want to give Decker a hard time, but it's almost like as if they wanted your career to fail because they, they put huge pressure on you to keep giving them A-sides. And at the same time, we're working every night. We were touring all the time. We were a real working band. When are we going to write the songs? When are we going to record? There's, there were no opportunities to do that. And so it's a sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, you might say, that the harder they pushed, the weaker the material's going to be. And, it, you know, it could almost have been that our career was over before it began. We had uh, Jim McCarty from the Yardbirds on oh, Great Minds. Yeah. Uh, yeah, wonderful guy. Jim's great, yeah. And he uh, shared his remembrances of being on those package tours you know, traveling around the States, you know, working night after night, show after show. And it was magical, but it was also exhausting for them. Oh, absolutely. I, I've blanked on the, 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 main, the caravan, Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars, we did. And um, 
I think I lost about 14 or 20 pounds um, on this tour. It, it was very strenuous. And unfortunately, some of the acts were being paid so little that they couldn't stay in a hotel every night. And we were all on the bus together. So it meant, I think the tour was about six weeks. And every second night, we drove through the night. But, but we didn't have beds. It was just an, like, an ordinary bus. You know, we didn't, they didn't even have toilets on the bus. And we were doing huge distances. So it, it, was, uh, it was a bit challenging. But it, it was a great way to see the country. And then once again, there was fantastic camaraderie on, on the bus because, you know, we were all in this together. It, it was pretty tough. And it was a mix of acts, UK, some UK talent, but a lot of American talent and a lot of mixing of white culture and black culture. Yeah, I, on the Dick Clark Caravan of Stars that we did, we were the only British act on there. Uh, Del Shannon was uh, headlining. You know, the Shangri-Las did it again. Um, the Iquettes, the Adlibs, Tommy Rowe. Um, so it's all Americans. There were others as well, but all Americans except for us. But certainly there was uh, some challenging moments when we went down south because it was at least a 50-50 um, black tour. Lovely, lovely people, great artists. But um, we were restricted where we could stay and, and, and where we could stop to eat. It, I, I, you know, it was a new experience to me, but it was... Um, it was quite challenging. It got, and, got, a bit, got a bit scary once or twice as well, to be absolutely honest. I'm sure. And, and that's, uh, there's been some films that have talked about it and some documentaries, but it's an incredible moment. And America's problems in race are still with us today in a different way. But back then you had this duality of iconic artists, many who were on the tours that you're talking about, you know, others. I talked to... Um, I had Steve Cropper uh, on uh, Great Minds, the lead guitarist for you know, Booker T and the MGs. And they were the backup band on all those tours with Otis Redding and you know, work with Sam Cooke and Jackie Wilson. And they would be playing in front of huge audiences, white audiences who loved and adored them and screamed for them. And then they couldn't stay in a hotel or they couldn't eat in a restaurant. It's very, it's very strange, isn't it? It is very, very strange. Uh, and it, the tour we were on, the, that main tour I was telling you about, Caravan Stars, it was very similar, very similar. We, but we had the double thing that the mostly the black acts um, weren't being paid enough to even stay in a hotel. Um, so that's why we had to travel every second night. You know, they would, they would just drive very slowly through the night. It's very Amazing. tiring. Amazing. But I mean, that whole thing about um, black artists playing for white audiences and then not being able to stay in a hotel or eat in the restaurant and things like that. It's, it is, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, no, it really, 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 really is. And you were uh, the lead uh, act on that particular tour, but that was a time when all the great British acts were coming over and doing these package tours, the Yardbirds who we mentioned, the Kinks, the Beatles, the Stones. Was there any crossover or camaraderie with some of those others at that time? Or did you all sort of live in you know, separate worlds? I think, um, I don't remember any crossover at the time particularly. And I think one of the reasons, one of the reasons was that um, 
we just didn't meet them. The band that we toured with quite a lot was The Searchers. We had the same manager as The Searchers. So we worked with them a lot. Um, but most of those other bands you mentioned, I mean, the Yardbirds I've played with a lot um, in the last few years, but not in the 60s. And I think one of the reasons that we didn't uh, meet up with them so much, those bands, was that we, we lived just a little way outside of London. So a lot of those bands had to move to London. The Beatles moved to London. The Stones lived in London. We lived just outside. And I don't think we were ever so involved in the, the social side of the music business in London as we would have been if we'd lived in London. The other thing was that our first record was a big hit. And of course, you should accept any success that you have uh, gratefully and gracefully. Of course, you should. But in a perfect world, it might have been better if that had come a little bit later because we'd already decided we wanted to try and be a professional band. So we would have tried to get into those great London clubs like uh, the Marquee, uh, Kluke's Clique, Eel Pie Island, all places that I would go in the, in the audience, I'd go and watch them. But the original Zombies never played those clubs, but all the other bands that especially the London bands like the Stones and the Yardbirds, they all played that circuit and they knew one another. But we, because we were just outside of London, we never really knew them at the time. Oh, it's, it's uh, yeah, interesting. We talked about some of those clubs and there's a great story of the Marquee Club where the Stones were late for a gig and Keith left his car right in front and just ran in. Yeah. And, and he was blocking Water Street. And they're like, whose, oh car, whose car is that? It was Keith and he was on stage. Yeah. So great, great stuff. So the zombies are so interesting in so many ways in that it was really a flash in a moment in time that ended up having uh, a life that we're still living today, as you said, 60 some odd years later. Odyssey and Oracle which is going to be celebrated back at Abbey Road um, is viewed by people who know and love music and who are respected. People like Paul Weller say it's their favorite album ever. He does. He says it, he said it quite recently. Um, he's been so supportive of us over here. And, you know, he also says that if he's talking to someone about his favorite music and he'll talk about Odyssey and Oracle, if they haven't heard of it, he will go and buy them a copy and give them a copy of Odyssey and Oracle. People like Paul Weller, um, Tom Petty was another one who was hugely supportive of us and Odyssey and Oracle. Um, Dave Grohl to some extent. Um, many, many artists have, have supported the Zombies. And that was not on DECA. You left DECA yes. and ended up signing, I think it was with CBS? We did, yeah. And um, it wasn't a very, uh, you know, grand deal that we did. They gave us a thousand pounds to record an album. And even in those days, that really wasn't very much money. But, you know, there's a lot of things I don't really understand. Somehow we managed to get into Abbey Road. Now, up until that point, I, I don't think Abbey Road would have anyone in there who wasn't an EMI artist. They, they do now, but at that point, I'm not aware of any other artists that recorded in there. It was EMI's studio. 
But somehow we, end, I don't know how, we ended up in there. And of course we inherited, if you like, the Beatles engineers. They just had the best engineers at Abbey Road. Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince worked on Odyssey and Oracle. They just finished Sergeant Pepper. They'd made quite a few upgrades in the studios uh, because the Beatles by then were quite demanding in what they wanted in the studio. Uh, the Beach Boys were recording on an eight track machine. There were no eight track machines in the UK. So the Beatles got the studio to lash, if you like, to join two four track machines together. And in doing that, you lost one track. So they were recording on a seven track machine instead of a four track machine. We inherited all that. We walked into the studio about two days, well, it was two days after they left. Unfortunately, we didn't meet them, but um, it, it really was in incredible. And uh, we inherited some of their, their instruments were left behind. Uh, I remember all the percussion. Sorry, the lights are a bit funny at my end. I think there's a light might be flashing. I apologize. No, but, it's okay. Um, we, uh, we inherited the uh, percussion instruments that they, they were lying around on, on the floor. And it was a great kick for us because uh, we were huge Beatles fans. And so to think that this tambourine, the last time this was played, was probably played by Ringo or the Maracas or whatever else was around, was, um, was, was played by the Beatles. And I've forgotten the name of this instrument. John Lennon had left this um, keyboard behind that, that oh God, it's so famous. And I can't remember the name of it. Um, but it gives, uh, uh, it simulates strings and brass and things like that. He left it behind and Rod used it. And if you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, John Mellotron, John, Mellon's, John Lennon's Mellotron, it's not easy to say. John Lennon, I can't say it. John Lennon's Mellotron is all over Odyssey and Oracle. It would have been a different record without that. So much chance. As, as we're talking, I just realized more and more how much chance is in or all, all of these things. Well, listen, starting with your story about how you and Paul happened to be sitting next to each other because his name was an was A horrible. and you were a B. Yes, it wasn't out of choice. I didn't know him, you know. I mean, we were, we were forced to sit like that. Yeah. And, and when we went to the Pioneer Club, there just happened to be a piano in the corner of the room. That was just chance. So let's stay in Abbey Road uh, for a little while longer, Colin. I, I, I've been lucky enough to uh, go there. We've done a few things there. Uh, Jeremy Huffelman, who's still there, is a dear friend. And uh, uh, it, it's an extraordinary place. I assume it, you, everything you did was in Studio Two? Strangely enough, no, that's not, uh, the zombies recorded in Studio Three. But okay. I know the, the Beatles mostly recorded in Studio Two, but they did sometimes record in Studio Three. Right. We always recorded in Studio Three. And then after that, uh, Rod did, I think, two or three albums with Argent in Studio Three. And I did three solo albums in Studio Three. So that was kind of always our studio. So Abbey Road, there's three studios. There's Studio One, which is the orchestral studio. Uh, studio stu enormous, right? Yes, like an aircraft hangar. Yeah. And Studio Two, which is where the Beatles did most of their recordings. Yes. And then Studio Three. Um, yes. And uh, you guys are still very young at that time. 
you know, that must have been absolutely incredible for you to be in those hallowed halls and work with people like Jeff Emmerich. I mean, these are the people who are responsible for incredible music that all of which is still still with us today. Do you remember what, you know, that walking in there, how awesome it must have felt? And, and you, you see all that you said, John Lennon's Mellotron and other instruments. I mean, that's heady stuff for a young guy. It was, it, it, it was a phenomenal experience. Um, yeah, it, I mean, I suppose I can imagine, I can't remember exactly, but I can imagine when we first in, went in there, we probably were a bit intimidated, but it's, it's a very professional, in, in a, with a light touch, it's a very professional place. And they soon make you feel at home and working with those world-class engineers. One of the great things about a really good engineer is he makes it easy for you. And, you know, you soon forget because you're, it's so intense what we're doing. Remembering we had a very, very small budget, a thousand pounds. What we did, we rehearsed really extensively before we went into the studio. So that when we got in the studio, we knew the songs we were gonna do. We knew the keys we were gonna play in. We knew the arrangements. We were just looking for the performance. So it was quite intense. And in situations like that, you soon forget that you're a bit intimidated and you're in you're in this really special place because you're, you're focused on what you're doing you're focused on the work we had to we had to watch the, the clock all the time because otherwise we would have run out of money right right which is uh, uh incredible given the context of what you did there and that you had to worry about things like that we certainly did and and the worst one uh, the worst track was Time of the Season because it was the last thing we recorded. It had only just been written. And, you know, we were running out of money. It had only just been written. And I wasn't too sure and secure about the phrasing, maybe not even the melody. It was, it was an afternoon session and Rob was trying to guide me through the lead vocal. He was in the control room with the engineers, tape ops and the rest of the band and whoever else was around. And I'm in the studio. And I can remember there was a big red light on in front of me. So I know this is studio time, we're paying for it. And then there was a big clock next door to it. And I could see time was ticking by. And Rob was going, so this is time of the season, you know, and he's going, no, no, you need to be on the beat for this phrase. You need, to, you need to be pushing on this one. I haven't got that quite right. And it started to get really heated between us because I was panicking. And the language was incredible between us through the mic and the headphones, but remembering anyone in the control room could hear what I was saying. I couldn't give you any idea of what it was because it was the worst language you can possibly think of. It was only because I was panicking, but it always makes me laugh because at the time as I'm, I'm singing, it's the time of the season for loving. I'm, <laughs> I'm going for Rod's throat, you know, listen, I remember what I said to him. I said, one of the things I said, listen, you know this bloody song so well, you bloody well come in here and sing it yourself. And he said to me, you're the bloody lead singer. You stand there till you get it bloody right. And that's the sort of thing that was going on while we were recording Time of the Season. Oh my God. Anyway, we got there in the end. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time, give it to me 
Five minutes later, it's all forgotten. You know, I mean, it's just the heat of the moment stuff. Well, yeah, as they say, you nailed it ultimately for sure. And the album comes out and shortly afterwards, the band breaks up. This is true, which does seem a little crazy. But first of all, it's best to remember that this, the 1967, this is in the UK, it was a little bit earlier in the UK than time of the season in America. Um, it was still a time of singles, really. The, the, the industry was based on singles more than it was on albums. And CBS released a single, it was Care of Cell 44. It wasn't a hit. I don't think it even got a lot of airplay. And so that made things a little bit difficult. And then when the album eventually was released, I don't remember it getting much attention at all. I remember... Uh, there was a wonderful DJ over here called Kenny Everett, who was a genius. He liked it. No other DJ seemed to like it. And there was one good reviewer uh, called Penny Valentine, who worked for a magazine called Disc, who gave Odyssey and Oracle a great review. But otherwise, to a large extent, I think it was ignored. And it, just, it seemed like a sign to us, you know, we've been struggling. We'd had huge problems with our manager and it was really draining. And, and then to make this album, which I remember at the time I thought about Odyssey and Oracle, I thought this is the best we can do. Whether it's, it's not for me to judge whether it's good or not. I'm, some, it's better that someone else does that, but it's the best we can do. That's what I thought. And the album was released and not much happened. We had a, a meeting and it was decided well guys you know we've had we've had a good run a lot of people thought that bands had a three-year lifespan in the 60s you know if you could keep it going for three years you were doing well and um so we just it's quite amicable but we just moved on and started doing other things a couple of years later uh time of the season was a big single i think it was a couple of years or maybe it was only a year but by then we were all committed to other projects and it was never ever discussed whether the band would reform. I, there was never any conversation about it at all. Rod had started Argent, I think by then, and I'd started making solo records. So I, we never talked about getting the zombies back together again, but what happened was that Rod and Chris had started a production company and they actually produced my first solo album. And there was a big hit single in, it was, this is the other way around. I had a big hit single in the UK, but not in America. So it's the opposite to what had happened before. But, you know, that's life. But we, we were off and running, you know, the, the zombies had finished, but we'd established new careers. Uh, Rod was in Argent, he wrote for Argent and he co-produced and Chris was writing for Argent and he was co-producing as well and I had a solo career. Hugh, Hugh Grundy, our drummer, and Paul Atkinson, our lead guitarist, both worked for CBS. Hugh for a few years, but Paul worked all his life for CBS. He was, he was really successful. Um, so in one way or another, we all stayed in the, in the business. 
It's just that we never got back together again as the zombies. And you mentioned it earlier, how there would be a lag from when something would come out in the UK to the US. Today, of course, everybody presses one digital button and you know it's the same all everywhere around the world. But back then, that was a very real thing. And time of the season blew up in the US well after the record came out, as I recall. It, I think it did. Yeah, I'm a little bit hazy about um, the dates. It, it's such a long time ago, you know, it's 50 right. years ago. I know that we recorded Odyssey and Oracle in the summer of 67. In the UK, I have a feeling it came out possibly in 68 and then later in the States. And so the story goes, there was one DJ in Boise, Idaho that picked time of the season and would not stop playing it. And from that one DJ, it, it was, took a long time. It spread, across, it spread across the country. But before that, CBS weren't gonna put the album out in the States, but um, Al Cooper from Blood, Sweat and Tears had just become a CBS producer. And uh, on his first day in work, he, he went to the head of CBS and it was a very brave thing for him to do. It was his first day at work. And he showed him Odyssey and Oracle. And he said, whatever it costs, he'd actually just been in England and he bought a whole load of albums. And Odyssey and Oracle was the one that, uh, he, that he really liked. And he, he just said, whatever it costs, we have to get this album. It, you know, it's incredible. And uh, Clive Davis, who was head of CBS said, well, we already own the album but we were going to pass on it. We weren't even going to release it. That album would not have been released if it wasn't for Al Cooper. He just fought for it. And uh, eventually it was released. I think there were three or four singles released from it. Time of the Season was the third or the fourth single. And it was a huge hit. Everything with the zombies, they all, it's always a struggle, you know, it's not, nothing happened quickly. Um, as I said, it was the third or the fourth single. I know they started off with Butcher's Tale, which is quite an unusual song. And it's, an, it's a brilliant song, but it's an unlikely choice as a single. It's really a very dark song about really the First World War, but people interpreted it as being about Vietnam. And um, I, you know, I can't really imagine top 40 stations playing that, no. uh, but that was CBS's choice. And then they, they went through half the album before they got to time of the season. And, uh, you know, it was a huge hit. Fantastic. So your solo career starts to take off. The zombies do not reunite at that time in any configuration. But there's this oddity in history where there were fake zombies, including oh, wow. one that had Dusty Hill and Frank Beard, who went on to form the legendary band ZZ Top. So there were literally a couple of bands out there that were fake zombies. Absolutely. And um, Rolling Stone were doing an article on it. And Chris White, our bass player, happened to be in Rolling Stone's offices. And Rolling Stone got Chris White to phone the manager of one of those fake bands to ask, he didn't say he was Chris White, but just to ask what's going on with, with this band. It's not the original zombies. And the manager said, they wanted to honor the lead singer in the zombies who'd been killed in a car crash. And to do that, they felt they had to keep the zombies music alive. And it was very strange that it's reported in Rolling Stone 
the Zombies lead singer has died, especially as I was the lead singer in the Zombies, to sort of read my epitaph before, before my time was due. It was very, very strange. But yeah, there were two or three bands. Um, oh my God. Uh, pretended to be the Zombies. And later on, there was another band uh, this was more in like the 80s. They were actually English who went out there and they they weren't very good. I kept reading reports on them and I, I actually approached the Musicians Union over here. I approached their manager. I re still remember his name. Um, eventually this band, they just stopped playing. And I was, this is a joke against myself because I was thinking that I'd played some, some hand in them stopped pretending that they're us but the story came out in the end they played a gig they were not good the audience weren't happy and one of the audience went into the dressing room and pulled a gun on them now i do not recommend this i'm not saying i recommend it but it is very effective and it sure is <laughs> he said you're not the zombies and you're not going to play pretending to be the zombies anymore. And they said, yes, sir. <laughs> oh, my God. What a, what a great story. So <laughs> we talked about uh, you mentioned Paul Weller and, and Tom Petty. And I'm a huge fan of his Buried Treasures radio show that Sirius XM still airs on yes. the Tom Petty station on their platform over here. And the zombies are always in the rotation of and Tom just plays his favorite music from his record collection. That's the show. We, we went to his house actually, and he has a studio in his house. Um, and we did an interview very similar to this with Tom, uh, Rod and I about um, five years ago or something like that. Talk about, talk about Tom because he's exposed me to a lot of your music that I didn't know, because he doesn't only play the hits on Buried Treasures. He plays a lot of the deep cuts, which I know in recent years, you and Rod have been performing. But Tom's taste in music uh, is unique. I don't know anybody who knows as much as he does, who has been not only the Heartbreakers, but the Wilburys. You know, they'll, we'll never see anything like the Traveling Wilburys again. Talk about spending time with him and his appreciation for your music, Colin, and how good that must have made you and Rod feel. Well, of course. I mean, firstly, he's a wonderful performer. Um, and uh, we played with, uh, with uh, Tom and the Heartbreakers and they were phenomenal. Um, he used to come and see us play. He'd often bring some of the Heartbreakers with him. He'd come backstage extremely humble just one of the guys you know just a fabulous person and of course so he was great fun to be with you know he's a huge star one of the biggest stars in rock and roll but you didn't feel at all in awe or awkward with him because he was such a warm wonderful person he was a huge enthusiast about music and I, I'm I'm humbled by people like that who've got such deep and diverse knowledge. Um, he was just wonderful company and a, a, a huge, of course, a huge, huge loss to music and to, of course, to his family. It's just so it's tragic. I mean, when we went to his house, it wasn't that long after that he died, actually. Um, 
and it's a terrible terrible tragedy but he was a wonderful person i find it quite difficult to talk to people in the music business i don't think i talk the right language i you know but with him it was easy he was just a very easy person to talk to and he's yeah. very interested in you you know he wants to talk about you not not him I wanted to hear about him, you know, but he just wanted to know about the zombies. What are we doing? How did we get this sound? How did this record come about? You know, yeah. yeah just as a passionate student of music and, yeah. and absolutely revered the zombies. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. well, he was revered by us as well. The kind of person that I really, really admire in this business. And there are so many, I'm not sure if it's quite the same in America, but in, in this country, there are quite a few people in positions of power, particularly uh, acting as DJs, who are personalities. They don't have any history in the music business. I don't think they have any interest in the music business. They're personalities from reality shows and things like that. And they, to some extent, are, are um, controlling uh, what music people are hearing. And I think it's really sad. I, I don't want to be too harsh on them. And they've got an mm -hmm. opportunity to expose themselves. I know, you know, it's show business, isn't it? They've, they have to go for it. But I liked, I preferred the business when you had these huge enthusiasts like Tom Petty. Look, we, we have other people. Well, Paul Weller is another one mm -hmm. uh, who's a huge enthusiast and incredibly uh, knowledgeable about music. And I, I just respect and admire these people, you know, enormously. So, Colin, you, your recording career was all of three years, roughly 1964 to 1967. And every year when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame voting would come up here in the States, the zombies would come up for years. And there was a clamoring that you heard amongst people like Tom Petty, the people that really know and love and have passion for music, not the politics of music, but the art of music. And there was this incredible tidal wave of hope every year that the zombies would get in. You were different than everybody else. Some who have gotten in, some who have still not gotten in. There was such an incredible love and respect and passion for the zombies. And when you finally did get in in 2019, it was really celebrated by the music industry uh, in an incredibly real way that must have made you feel great. And it must also be almost an odd sensation that you have such adoration all these decades later. And now in 2021, going through a whole new life, which will culminate with that big show at Abbey Road in the not too distant future. What do you remember from when you got that phone call that you were in the Rock Hall after all those years of the door not being open for the zombies. And then all of a sudden, the door for the zombies swings wide open in Cleveland. Well, of course, it was an extraordinary feeling. I mean, to start with, I thought that, you know, in the 70s even, certainly in the 80s and the 90s, I thought the zombies were forgotten. I honestly did. I think everyone else in the band did. Not in a in a bitter way. I mean, I just thought people have moved on. Uh, and then when Rod and I got back together again and started playing, we could feel that there was a new fan base was growing. And eventually we were nominated for the Rock Hall. I was, 
uh, which knocked me sideways. I wasn't expecting it at all. When we were nominated, uh, I was absolutely thrilled. Um, but I think we were nominated for either three or four years. It, you start to think we're, we're only ever going to be nominated. This isn't going to happen. But then after how many, however many years, it was possibly four years, um, we actually got inducted. Yes, I remember the phone call. It was in this room and I, I had to sit down. I was just so, just so thrilled. And it, it's, it was a wonderful experience. You know, we've been on a long journey from 1961, if you want to go right back to the beginning, but our first record was 1964. We had terrible management problems. We, the band finished before our biggest hit. Um, and then we thought we were forgotten. And after all of that, and then Rod and I start up again and we're playing in little rooms at the back of pubs. And, but we love playing, I'm not saying that's a hardship, but we had to put the hours in. And then after all that, we, we get nominated and finally inducted for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You start to think, you know what? It, it's been great, it's been a great adventure. It's been tough, but bloody hell, it's been worth it. We've been inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. Fantastic story. And let's talk about what's coming up at Abbey Road because it's really special and that's uh, uh, got to just, you know, it makes my, you know, I'm, I'm tingling just thinking about it. I can't imagine how you feel. We're very excited. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm, I do have a little trepidation because we haven't played for two years. And especially because our bass player lives in Denmark we're a little limited on rehearsal time, but um, it's going to be great to be playing live again. We all love to, to play live and to tour. We're going to be playing in Studio Two, the Beatles studio. Um, so the atmosphere and the history that's going to be in that room is just going to be phenomenal. I think we're going to play about um, an hour and a half. We're going to play the hits, deep cuts and we're going to play five new songs and three of them are going to be with a string quartet so I think it's going to be really really exciting it's September the 18th it's our world tour in one night um, <laughs> it's not, that's not my idea but I just think it's funny world tour in one night and uh, yeah I'm really really looking forward to it fabulous and hoping to get back on the road in 22 yeah, we, we have got um, dates confirmed in the UK starting at the end of February, and we have dates for the States later in the year. So, you know, presuming everything gets back to some kind of normality, we will be back on, on the road next year. So I'm really looking forward to that. Wow. I'm a bit of a lost soul, you know, when I'm, when I'm not working, you know, I don't quite know what to do with myself. So I'm really looking forward to it. Colin, thanks so much for doing this. It was a joy to talk to you and have this uh, incredible walk down a memory lane that is uh, completely unique. Uh, and you're the heartfelt way that you tell the stories um, and remembrances of, uh, of a period in time that was so long ago, 
but still seems like yesterday and has incredible resonance today. It's just a joy to talk to you. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. It's, it's been great fun. And thank you for having me on the show. Said, da 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 da.